When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, we're going to need a bigger airline cabin for the all-rounders. There's a lot of them in Australia's World Cup squad for the tournament coming up in India. And that's going to be the subject of the deep dive today. Brought to you by Isuzu Utes. You can live your own way in the seven-seater Isuzu MUX. See your Isuzu Ute dealer today. Heater squad of 15. That's right. And lots of people who can bat and bowl. <laughs> it uh, need to be able to do a couple of different roles if you want to make this provisional Australian World Cup squad. So Pat Cummins, of course, the skip. Sean Abbott is in there. So is Ashton Agar, Alex Carey, Cameron Green, Josh Hazelwood, Travis Inglis, uh, sorry, Travis Head, Josh Inglis, Mitchell Marsh, Glenn Maxwell, Steve Smith, Mitch Stark, Marcus Stoinis, David Warner, and Adam Zampa. That's your 15-man squad for the uh, potential squad for the World Cup coming up. Yeah, and of course, no Marnus Labuschagne. So yeah, um, clearly they don't think he can bat and bowl. <laughs> just, do, just the batting for Marnus. Uh, do you rate him as a uh, fifty-over uh, proponent of the game, Marnus uh, Labuschagne? I reckon if you're a good player, you're a good player. Well, I, I you should be able to. Yeah, Marnus Labuschagne's a good player. But, but I understand what they're doing, mm. and and there's a lot of hitting power in that lot, isn't there? Yeah, um, you know, um, Green, Marsh, Stoinis, Maxwell, you know. What do they got in common? They hit it a mile. <laughs> That's right. They hit it further than they go on holidays. Yeah, <laughs> they really do. <laughs> in- incredible yeah. uh, batsman. How about the resurgence of Mitchell Marsh as an international yeah. cricketer? It's and, extraordinary, isn't you it? You know, just vindication. I think for all of us out there that knew, you know, how great a guy he is, how great a player he is, to see him out there now captaining the side in Pat's absence as well and doing a fantastic job of it, making a boatload of runs as well. Um, just doing the job that we knew he could. I think what – so you often see this with batsmen, I reckon. Yep. They have to work out the way to be themselves at the crease and, and, and basically play their way. Mm. And I reckon for a long time, Mitchell Marsh was a powerful batsman who wanted to be technically more correct because he felt – you know, he was getting out and he he was always getting his front pad in the way. He was already, yeah. always getting trapped, LBW. And later on in his career, as he's grown into himself as a cricketer and a person, he's just worked out, I've got a bat, they've got a ball. Mm. I'm pretty good at hitting the ball with the bat. So if I get my foot somewhere near it and I get my eye in line with the ball, yep. I can hit it mm. a hell of a long way. And he started doing that. He started playing his natural game. He's become more aggressive, even in the test game. And the results are, are there for all to see. Mm. So some of the names that have missed out on the squad uh, were Tambia Sanger, who's been bowling very well in the T20s against South Africa, uh, as Adam Zampa and Agar were the two specialist spinners picked. Uh, Aaron Hardy, Spencer Johnson and Tim David are also players that have missed out in the squad um, that have missed out on a World Cup selection. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen Aaron Hardy get a game. He's got a lot of potential, but obviously when you've got 
that caliber of all rounders already there ahead of you. Yep, that's going to be hard. I mean, and and Mitchell Marsh has changed the order mm. in all of this, hasn't he? To the point where Cameron Green now finds himself outside of the Test team, trying to get back in because of Mitchell, what Mitchell Marsh did in the in the Ashes series. So well done, Mitchell. But it's a it's a challenge for Cameron Green to find another level, both with bat and ball, and reestablish himself as the next big thing in Australian cricket. So October eighth is the first match of the World Cup for Australia versus India. So what, just over a month away? Yes, and of course David Warner still only has to turn up at the right game, <laughs> right ground, and wearing the right uniform at the right time, and he gets not, a game. Not at the SCG, so he's not wrapping up yet. <laughs> we've, we've talked about this. He's going to be okay to keep going, but uh, yeah, it will be uh, interesting to see. And of course, there is always the little star at the end of it uh, with the Australia squad saying can be changed up until September twenty eight. So. We still have 22 days to see some changes in that side or perhaps some injuries. It's a Clayton squad then, the squad you have <laughs> yeah. when you don't have a real, nah, that's a real right. squad. Hey, good text come through on the um, on the temper at Bedshed text line on Daniel Rich. said, saw a stat on Daniel Rich that 65 of his 116 AFL goals came from outside 50. Mm. Many other or left-footers or kicks from outside 50 that spring to mind. A lot of good kicks from outside 50. You know, it was that draft was an interesting draft because there were two, well, there were actually three or four really good prospects from Western Australia. Obviously, Nick Natanui was one mm. in that draft. Stephen Hill was in that draft. And there was the great debate mm. pre that draft as to whether Fremantle should be taking Stephen Hill or Daniel Rich because they had access to both. And they ended up going with Hill because they felt he was the better runner. And for a long well, at the start of the career, it looked like Rich was going to be the better player. Then for a long period through the middle of their careers, it looked like Stephen Hill was going to have the better career. Mm. And then Stephen Hill's calf muscles <laughs> gave out. And Daniel Rich has actually finished up having the better career. But for those who get fascinated by the debate, I think Fremantle will quite happily have the argument mm. over who's the better player and who's had the better career, Stephen Hill mm. or Daniel Rich. The argument you don't want to be having when you have top 10 draft picks is who had the better career, Richard Tambling or Lance Franklin? <laughs> okay. <laughs> or who had the better career, Aaron Fiora or Matthew Pavlich? Yeah. That's yeah. not the argument you want to be having. You, no. I think Fremantle will happily have the argument and they'll even concede a points yeah. defeat yeah. on that one. But, yeah, the other ones are... <laughs> no. You can't have that argument. First round knockouts, those ones, I think. And we are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes. You can live your own way in the seven-seater Isuzu MUX. So here, on behalf of Isuzu, the four things I would want to be sure of before I even thought about doing a trade for Sean Darcy. So point one, who wants him? And do they have a draft pick well inside 10 that they are prepared to part with to get him? Or do they have a player of commensurate importance in the structure to what Darcy represents to Fremantle. So Darcy is a Geelong boy, and whenever trade scuttlebutt involving him comes up, the cats are always mentioned. And that talk is fertilised by the fact that since Brad Otten's Geelong have not really had what we would term an A-grade ruck option. But given that Geelong's list is teetering and they need to inject young talent again, I'm not sure that trading away their draft collateral is going to be high on their agenda. Sydney is a club that is about to lose a veteran ruckman with Tom Hickey set to give the game away at the end of the season. 
But the Swans are playing a final this weekend, and if they win, their draft pick is going to go well north of pick 10. Now, remember, Darcy has at times over the past two seasons been labelled Fremantle's most important player. So you're not getting that player letting him go unless there is a pick close to the top of the draft or unless there is a very important player headed your way in exchange. Point two, if you lose Darcy, can Luke Jackson lead the ruck for an entire season? Now, that's the key to that, an entire season. We've all seen Jackson produce outstanding games this season when Darcy hasn't been playing. But two rules you always apply about a player at AFL level. How well can he play and how often can he play well? And in Jackson's case, you can vary that a little bit. How long can he sustain it for? Remember, Jackson is an athletic, jumping 200-centimetre ruckman, not a 205-centimetre monster like a lot of the physical specimens he's going to come up against. So it might be one thing for him to play well against these blokes on any one given day, but what about 23 days, one week after the other between March and August, and then hopefully finals to follow? There is no doubt he gives the Dockers more mobility and movement around the ground. He effectively gives them another ground-level player inside centre square stoppage and extra speed um, around the playing field in general. But he also has to combat bigger, heavier bodies every ruck contest he goes to. And it probably means the Dockers would have to bring in some form of ruck support for Jackson if they want to trade Darcy. So I guess the question that follows from that is Liam Reedy ready for that? And perhaps that is something to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks in the Waffle Finals. And we're going to talk to Peel coach Jeff Valentine. So uh, later on the show, we might get his views on Liam Reedy. Point three, how much money do Fremantle want tied up in ruck stocks? The Luke Jackson contract is for seven years and is believed to be going to earn Jackson somewhere north of $800,000 per year. It's a lot of money. It's going to be a lot more money for two ruckmen if they even come close to matching that sort of deal to keep Darcy. And they're probably going to have to come up with a long-term deal. The seven-year deal for Jackson is a big commitment, but at the end of the day, it was done for a 21-year-old. Jackson will, in theory, at least still be at his absolute peak when he comes out of contract at around 28 years of age. Darcy is 25. He's played 98 games. He's a heavily built ruckman who has had some injury issues over the years and is rehabbing major ankle surgery at the moment. So if they signed Darcy on a five- or six-year deal, what sort of shape is he going to be in come the end of that deal? The things that made Darcy a very good player when he was still very young as a ruckman, his body mass and burly frame, may also mean that he fades a little earlier than lighter, more athletic types. And point four, finally, and I suspect this will be the question that the Dockers have to spend most time considering in the hypothetical situation that they do consider trading Darcy. How important is a dominant ruck brigade in modern football? Almost every rule the AFL has changed in recent years has been to encourage faster ball movement and more attacking play. 
So are we going to be looking at a stoppage-based game in coming years or is the nature of the game going to continue to evolve away from that? We have seen Melbourne attempt to go with two dominant ruckmen this year by bringing in Brodie Grundy and all it did was dilute Max Gorn's influence on the game. The Ds appear to finally have settled on a ruck structure with Gorn going it alone with makeshift back up and Grundy out of the team. Now, Jackson has shown he can team with a dominant ruckman like Gorn in a successful team. They were Melbourne's ruck combination in the 2021 Premiership and both played pivotal roles in that flag. You remember Gorn's five goals in the preliminary final and remember the 15 minutes Jackson played in the third quarter when Melbourne surged from behind to be well in front. But is there any other example over the past 10 seasons when a team has needed a dominant ruckman to win an AFL flag. Hawthorne's rucks were useful, not dominant. The Western Bulldogs used a forward-turned ruck in Tom Boyd, supported by a defender-turned ruck in Jordan Ruffhead in 2016. Richmond used the big-bodied competitor Toby Nankervis, and West Coast survived the loss mid-season of Nick Natanui in 2018 to win a flag with Scott Lysette and Nathan Vardy rucking. And as I mentioned earlier, Geelong, who won the flag last year, never really had a dominant ruck option. So what do you think, Docker fans? Do you think Fremantle should trade Sean Darcy out to bring in more quality in some other area where the team may need it more? Or do you want the club to stay with a two-ruck structure, evolve and make it work? We are, as always, brought to you by... Isuzu Utes, you can live your own way in the powerful Isuzu D-Max. And on behalf of Isuzu, here are four thoughts on the four AFL finals this weekend to four-wheel drive you to work today. Thought one, the Collingwood-Melbourne clash is the game that will decide premiership favouritism. I know the Pies finished on top and they absolutely deserve to. Their go-ahead game capturing our imagination and making football so watchable this season. But I get the feeling that the Ds, the Premiers of 2021, are building nicely into this finals campaign and might be ready to make a big statement. The question I am asking about the Pies is how their game translates to the pressures of finals footy. Now, I know it appeared to hold up okay last year when they lost narrowly to Geelong and Sydney and they comfortably beat Fremantle, but there will be no sterner test of how it holds up than the Demons, who have a seasoned finals team now and a method they know works in September. Do the Pies have the ruck stocks to go with Melbourne skipper Max Gorn? And can they get enough speed and spice on the ball going forward to upset the Melbourne intercept defenders in what is going to be a really hot and physical game? I've liked Melbourne as the Premier from a few weeks out from this final series and with absolutely no disrespect to the Pies, I'm going to tip the Ds to win this one. Thought two... The thing I am most looking forward to out of the Carlton-Sydney match on Friday night is the performance of Charlie Kernho. Because of the way footy is played these days, it's not often we get to see a big dog forward capable of dominating the September stage. Teams tend to want a variety of scorers, and the Blues took time this year to work out a style of play that enabled them to play to their strength and bring their guns into the game. 
The fact that at times this year Sydney has struggled to deal with opposition key forwards just makes Kerno's performance on Friday night all the more enticing. If you want a word that sums up the Blues, it is power. The scoring power of Kerno and to a lesser degree Harry Mackay at the front. The defense, the defensive power of Jacob Wietering at the back. And the grunt and power of Paddy Cripps, Adam Chera and co through the middle. Carlton, in their first final in 10 years, one of Melbourne's big four clubs back on the big stage for the first time since 2013. It is going to be big. The one thing we can say about Sydney is they won't be overawed. They played in a grand final in 2022. They are well coached with strong bonds holding the team together. But I think home ground advantage might be a big thing for the Blues in this one, and more particularly home crowd advantage. The final starved blue baggers are going to be loud and the Swans are going to have to shut them up early. Thought three, St Kilda versus GWS on Saturday afternoon pits two of 2023 coaches of the year against each other. Now, mathematically, Ross Lyon has only won two more games than Brett Ratton won last season and Ratton got the sack from St Kilda's board because they felt their list could do better. But this is a typical first-year impact for Ross Lyon at a club. He always has an immediate impact when he joins a club. He gets across-the-board buy-in from players. He employs strong method. And it hasn't mattered that the Saints have had their share of injury issues through the course of this year. The method has held up strongly certainly strongly enough to get to September, and Lions teams go all right in September. They'll bring a lot of energy and pressure. They will make the opposition beat them. If I had to pick a coach of the year right now, it would be GWS mentor Adam Kingsley in his first season as an AFL coach. The Giants won six games last year to finish 16th. They've won 13 games this year to finish seventh. If you disagree with me, you can send in your thoughts on the temperate bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. But the Giants are not only vastly improved in performance, they are vastly improved in game style, and that style and method was evident when they rolled over the top of Carlton in round 24 to book their spots in the finals. Since the Giants lost to the Saints in round 10 in Sydney by two goals. They have played 13 games for 10 wins and three losses, which means their form heading into this final series is as good as any team inside of the top eight. And they have Toby Green, which automatically makes this one of the most watchable games of a big finals weekend. And thought for finally, Brisbane's qualifying final against Port Adelaide I would argue, is the biggest match a Brisbane Lions team has played since the halcyon days under Lee Matthews, which brought the Lions flags in 2001, 2002 and 2003. Now, I know the Lions played in a home preliminary final in 2020, but it was a very different year, the pandemic year. And while they were only a win away from a grand final, you got the feeling that Chris Fagan's team wasn't quite ready to go head-to-head with the likes of Geelong and Richmond at that point. Three years on from that, here they are. They are seasoned. 
this will be their fifth final series in succession. And they have a chance to make a play for the flag the best way a non-Victorian team can do it. That is home qualifying final, win it, get the week off, home preliminary final, win that, and then go to the grand final for one hit-and-run mission at the MCG. This is Coach Chris Fagan's best chance at a flag, and he has acknowledged as much this week. Port Adelaide, great season, arguably the AFL's most exciting and dynamic midfield, and it would not surprise me one bit if they pull the upset off here. Just a final note on the scheduling of this game. Why is this the last of four finals to be played this weekend? This is a top four clash. Surely the loser of this game deserves a longer break than the winner of the elimination final who they play the next week. If the loser is Port, they will have the longest travel of the first week of finals and have the shortest recovery. Is this just another example of the AFL taking the money over competition integrity?